0: Chapter six, and uh, I'll just pray for uh, for Pastor Matt. And uh, before we start, uh, the Heavenly Fathers like to uh, yeah, thank you for your Word. Uh, thank you for uh, yeah this this vision of your your throne. Uh, I pray, Father, that um, yeah, you, you'd speak powerfully through Matt. Uh, help us uh, just to. Just grab a, a glimpse of your glory this morning, uh, and help us also to see uh, ourselves uh, from your perspective, in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him was seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for me? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving, make the heart of these people callous, S- make their ears dull, and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be, laid wa- it will be again laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land, this is the word of the Lord.
1: be here to be able to open God's word with you this morning so if you've got your Bibles there do keep that open uh, with you. Now uh, I love that question actually about the last time that you were truly terrified uh, because probably if you're like me and you're kind of into adulthood there's probably not so many things that are on the level that you would be truly scared or terrified of is it? Now, the last time that I can really uh, remember that really fearsome feeling was, was actually at Riverfire a few years ago. Now, who's been to Riverfire before, kind of done that thing? You go down and, and there's a whole kind of festival along the river. Uh, but if you've never been there, there's this moment when they fly one of the F-18 Super Hornets kind of right down the river. And there's this loud, massive boom as this jet just flies down the river. Um, now, I could try and stand here and explain to you what it's like If you haven't seen it, but I thought actually it's best to kind of try and experience it in a a little way. So I'm hoping that this is going to work for us uh, and that uh, we'll be able to get a snippet of the field. You kind of heard there. That was my son. He's probably, I think, about four years old. They're going, I'm very brave. I'm very brave. I'll be okay. And we were like, no, no, you've got to be ready. Cover your ears. Get ready for this. But tell you, when that plane flies past and and the windows are shaking, it's not just the kids who are cowed in the corner. Actually, us adults too were kind of going, man, we were feeling brave before this moment. But when just the ferocity of that sound as the, the plane just goes down that river, I'll tell you why, it doesn't matter how old or young you are, at that moment you are feeling very, very small. Now I think it's a bit like that, like I don't know if you uh, have experienced that kind of ferociousness, that, that moment where you're just in pure awe at something, at the pure power of what's there. I mean these military jets are powered by very powerful engines, but just to hear the, the plane as it cuts through the air and it flies down that river was something truly awe-inspiring. Now, this morning, we're going to be actually looking at one such experience. Now, this morning, we're actually going to encounter God in his own bone-shaking holiness. In fact, uh, Pastor Egy actually tells me that this is what this whole series has been named after in this passage. See, last week, God brought that charge against Israel for their sin, their misguided worship. Uh, It was tinged with just that little bit of hope, but that hope wouldn't come until... God's full judgment would be poured out on this ancient uh, nation of Israel. Now, Isaiah then gets up and he pronounces all sorts of woes upon the nation, chapters 2 to 5. And and, uh, uh, this week, though, when we get up to chapter 6, it's almost like there's this flashback moment. This flashback moment to when the moment the prophet Isaiah gets his calling, his commission, to go and preach to the nation of Israel. So if you've got your Bibles open there, have a look at Isaiah chapter uh, 6, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, what's going on here? Isaiah has this, this big, epic vision of God, right? And Isaiah, he's standing before the throne of God, and, and literally everything is shuddering, right? Did you get there? It was loud, These uh, seraphim, these big angelic creatures are calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now, we don't know exactly what this scene looks like, but some artists have attempted to portray what it's like for these great big angelic beings. But what we do read about here in Isaiah's Recanny of the Experience is that their voices are so loud that everything shakes. And what they're doing, what they're declaring is God's holiness. Holiness. Now, holiness is one of those words. It's a very kind of jargon, Christian kind of word. Um, Now, you might have heard it uh, described as being being something that's set apart, something that's sort of uh, set apart for a special thing or purpose. Uh, now, I think in lots of ways it doesn't fully capture it, does it? I mean, when you just get a picture of, of this scene that Isaiah's is there as he describes God's holiness, you see a scene of, of ultimate power, of ultimate purity, of ultimate goodness, of ultimate rule and authority. You see, holy is probably really, it's a word to describe God, it's an adjective of God, it's the, it's the godness of God, if you like. Yes, so God is something totally separate and otherworldly, you can't find anything like him in this universe. But his power, his perfection, his purity is what's on show when we're talking about God. And the holiness of God in this picture, it's so blazing, so searing, that even the seraphim, these powerful angelic beings, cover their eyes, lest they look gazing directly on God's holiness. And Isaiah himself is blinded by this mere vision, not so much of God's face, but just of his robe as it fills this throne room. Now, I have to say, that's often not the way we think about God, is it? I mean, particularly, I think, in our contemporary times, the way that Hollywood like, would like to portray God. I think that Hollywood's trying to turn God into a little bit more of an everyday kind of God, right? This is Morgan Freeman in a movie called Bruce Almighty. Uh, he wears a white suit, so they're trying to capture something of that, that purity that's there. But he's, he's not sitting on a throne surrounded by angels. He's, he's kind of sitting in an office like an accountant or a businessman. Now, he's also very relatable, right? He's the kind of guy you could come and get alongside and have a good chat to. Now, don't get me wrong. God is relational. God is fatherly. God is someone who wants to get to know us, and he definitely cares, but let's not domesticate him. Let's not pretend that God is someone that you can just trifle with, rock up and put an arm around his shoulder. Without him first inviting you in. In fact, that's actually why I took a really serious Christian to uh, kind of give us a, a decent analogy for God, uh, and this is Aslan, isn't it? Aslan, C.S. Lewis, a very serious Christian. Uh, Aslan. Now, I loved the picture of Aslan because I think it's trying to capture something of the ferociousness of who God is in His holiness. And there's a couple of quotes from, uh, from the Narnia series that I love about Aslan, because it does help to kind of capture something of, that, of what it would be like to relate to God. Here's the first one. Aslan stood up, and when he opened his mouth to roar, his face became so terrible that they did not dare to look at it. And they saw that all the trees in front of him bend before the blast of his roaring, as grass bends in a meadow before the wind the power that is contained there. And again, this is just an an allegory, a metaphor for God. Here's another one. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You know, uh, church, this is, a, this is a serious look at beholding the God who is there. Not the God or the God of pop culture, not the God of uh, whatever maybe pictures or imagery you might have, but actually this is the God of the Word. Is this, is this the view of God that we have? The God who is powerful and fearsome and holy See, what is a human to do in the face of awe-inspiring holiness like that? Let's see what Isaiah says. Let's see what he does. Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, I want you to kind of imagine Isaiah at this point, he's just cowed in a corner. He's probably uh, prostrate on the floor, covering his eyes, trying to hide himself from the ferocious power and the energy that is there in the throne room. But what you notice there is that Isaiah is instantly aware of the gap between him and God, right? See, here is mere man, a sinful man, a man of unclean lips, a man who lives among unclean people. He doesn't belong there in the throne room. How can Isaiah possibly stand when there's the powerful and holy God standing before him, a man of mere sinful uh, uncleanliness? He's so uh, aware of that, that he's just waiting to be incinerated by God's holiness. See, Isaiah isn't there thinking or just pondering about the God that's there. He's experiencing it. And, he's, and what he sees in the, in the face of bone-shaking holiness is an acute awareness of his own unholiness on account of his sin, on account of his people's sin. You see, one of the secrets to the Christian life is, is both beholding our God, seeing him clearly, and beholding our sin. Being seeing God clearly, and seeing ourselves clearly. Because we have a propensity, don't we, to convince ourselves that underneath we're basically pretty decent people, right? Isn't that so true? But I think it's a little bit like sheep in snow, right? Sheep in snow. Now, uh, if I ask you, you ask me, now what colour are sheep? You would say, well, they're white. Of course, they're white, right? Well, what happens when you put sheep against snow? What happens? Well, sheep suddenly don't seem so white anymore, do they? Against that purity of a of a total whiteout of snow, or well, even a white sheep, all those blemishes, all those different colors and things that are going on there in their wool become immediately obvious. And see, that's what the holiness of God does for us too. We are supposed to be, we are supposed to reflect God's glory. We are supposed to be Pure and white, and, and, and in the image of God, reflecting God's glory out to the universe. But we're not like that, are we? No, we're much more like sheep in snow, much more shown up for all of our failures to reflect God's glory, or the sin that's in our lives. All our faults or our failures become, become plainly obvious in the face of God's holiness. And you know, the, lo- the longer that I am a Christian, you know, I think the more aware I am of my sin, of my unholiness, of, of of the gap between God and me. In fact, actually, I think that's actually a sign of maturity, that actually you don't think that you're, you're somehow getting closer to God, you actually become more and more aware of the ways in which you fall short of God. You see, the more I'm confronted by who God is, well the less actually I should be in that position to be just excusing my sin or justifying my sin or, or downplaying my sin. You see, the more that I, that, that I live as a Christian, and mature as a Christian, the more I start to realise that there's, there's sin I didn't even know about. Or that the sin that I do know about is actually far worse than what I gave myself credit for. In fact, just like Isaiah, we really ought to be cowed in a corner just weeping over our sin. Now, C.S. Lewis said this, the holier man comes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. And see, so here's really one of the clues, I think, to real transformation, real growth, real maturity in the Christian life. You see, we don't need more people to tell us how great we are. We don't need more people to boost our self-esteem. We don't need more people to you know, to kind of protect us from the, the bad things out there in the world because the impurity is within us. We're not pure human beings. We're just, you know, needing protection from the world. We're not pure human beings. who are maybe just oppressed by the world. No, in our heart of hearts, we are rebels. We are sinners. And we have rejected our God. In fact, what we really need is something to go deeper, don't we? We need to be able to say, like Paul, that we are the chief of sinners. What we actually need is more confession, more brokenness, more conviction, convicted by the, the vision of God's holiness. We need a more realistic view of ourselves, one that we can only see rightly when put up against the holiness of God. Now, as this uh, account goes on that Azar gives us, there's a real twist in the story, isn't there? A real twist that you almost didn't expect. And this is there in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is actually huge, isn't This is a massive moment. And this picture of what should be total destruction of this uh, kid, Isaiah, as he's there, as he's faced with the holiness of God, we see something unexpected happening. One of these seraphim take a live coal and it touches his lips. You see, the lips in the Bible, it's an outworking of our hearts, as Jesus himself says. And so by atoning for Isaiah's lips, he's atoning for the sin, the sin of his heart. The atonement is uh, funny. It's another one of those little words. I mean, quite literally, it actually just means at one, right? It's actually a totally made-up word uh, because we had to find something to kind of fit this biblical concept of, of atonement. And so what you're seeing there is, as, as Isaiah is atoned is that he is being made to now be at peace with God, having had his sins dealt with, his guilt taken away. In fact, now that he's been atoned, his own death has been averted. Because you see, the thing is, our sin is serious. It affects us from top to toe. We need a total renovation from the inside out. We need a total cleansing to cleanse our idols, our impurities, our. And, and, and only God can do that. Only God can do that kind of work in us. See, that's the problem with all our attempts at, at trying to. at self improvement, at, uh, at personal growth. We just don't go far enough, we don't get down to the level of our hearts. See, it's so funny, isn't it? In our world, it's the the reality TV makeover program, isn't it? You know, makeover your house, makeover your clothes, makeover whatever it is. Um, And our reality TV, our our culture keeps saying, well, if you could just change some of these external things and it would allow the beautiful person inside just to to shine and, and radiate out of you. But nothing could be further from the truth. Not to say that some of those things aren't good. A lot of those things are good, but they're only surface level. They're only superficial. None of those things can change and transform our hearts in the way that God can. You see, what's missing is actually our atonement of sin, our brokenness over our sin, our remorse, repentance, it should be dependence and desperation before God. I mean, when was the last time that you actually prayed on your knees before God? I mean, that's the right stance before God, isn't it? You know, in high school, we, uh, we had this little chapel that we used to go to as, as kind of part of the school program. But uh, it had all these little cushions. Um, it was on the pews. It kind of had this little space where you had these little soft cushions there. And I always wondered what they were about. Until one day, actually, someone explained to me that that, that's actually there, so you can put on the floor, so you could be kneeling to pray. I mean, that's actually the right stance before God, isn't it? As an unholy person who's standing and speaking to the Lord of the universe, we should be on our knees. But one of the great twists, not just for Isaiah, but for us too, is that out of the ashes of our own deep conviction of sin, Jesus brings us atonement. Jesus is the one who pours out his spirit for us and can do that work in our hearts for us. So The whole book of Hebrews is really about the way in which uh, Jesus is the ultimate atoner of sins. So here's a couple of little snaps um, from later on in the book of Hebrews. But he, that's Jesus... Uh, has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages. Um, go. At the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, you can't, it's not that you have to go and put on this holiness to be able to come to Jesus. Actually, Jesus is the one who comes to you And he deals with your sin he is the one who makes you holy and actually at the conclusion of of the book of hebrews he concludes that actually now as a a result of the work of christ you and i can stand in the throne room of god check this out therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of jesus by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, this is something that Isaiah could never have imagined. Now we see kind of a little snippet, a little foretaste of it in Isaiah's own experience, but in Jesus' Owned body in his death and his resurrection it is his atoning sacrifice that even Isaiah's moment points us towards it is only what by jesus's sacrifice that we can enter the throne room of god but having now been in the position now being able to take on to to, to, to be able to be one with christ and to take on his death death and resurrection for us what does hebrew really say well you can have confidence to enter the throne room of God. You can draw near to God. You can have a heart that's full of assurance, having had our hearts and conscience cleansed, having had your bodies washed clean. Because of Jesus' turning sacrifice, you can be made holy, as holy as the God who filled that temple with his holiness. That is a remarkable thing about the gospel, the remarkable thing about Jesus' work on the cross is that it can now bring us into that throne room, not like Isaiah cowered down, covering our eyes, fearful of our own death. We can come with confidence. We can come with confidence. We can now get to know that God, the holy God who is there, and know him as our Father. You can't get there on your own, but you can with Christ. It's an extraordinary thing about uh, being a Christian to be to be even admitted into this space. In fact, the whole story of Scripture is so much about how we are kept out from that space. Ever since the Garden of Eden, how we are not allowed to enter into that zone, kept out, kept out at arm's length from the temple. But what 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 has been kept keeping us apart from God has now been made right because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us. It's extraordinary. And as people who have been made holy because of jesus work now jesus himself gives us that task of living out that holiness of being holy as god is holy here's a here's a great quote if you think you can walk in holiness without keeping up perpetual fellowship with christ you have made a great mistake if you would be holy you must live close to jesus Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher. Now, as the book of Hebrews finishes, he actually commands us to, to come together, to not stop meeting together, because actually what we, we can do is actually spur each other on to that holiness, spur each other on to that love and good deeds as, a, as an outworking of people who've been made holy by Christ. We can be a people who are all together. We are on about growing in holiness. This is not just my own private project that I've just got to work harder on. Now Jesus has saved me. Now I've just got to work really, really hard to do it. No, no, this is a project now for us as a church together. We are on this path together to grow in holiness together. It's about confession. It's about confrontation. It's about keeping each other accountable. It's about uh, walking that path of confession and repentance together, realizing that we can't fix ourselves apart from God by having his spirit-empowered church. Well, that is a significant power now that can grow us. That as we catch a vision of the glory of God, as we realise how far short we, f- we fall together, that we're then spurring each other on to the love and good deeds and the kind of holiness without which no one will see God. Now, as the chapter rounds out, um, Isaiah's commission for his prophetic ministry uh it turns out that actually his ministry would not be would not be one of of raging success and mass conversions and, and of the turning of the nation of Israel. Actually, what Isaiah is given the mission to then go and do, go and bring, go and preach in a way that's gonna, gonna hasten the judgment upon Israel. Now I actually forgot to put this up on a slide, but read along in your Bibles. Verse eight. From verse eight. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants until houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Isaiah is to preach judgment on Israel. He is to preach to a people who will ever be hearing and never understanding, ever seeing and never perceiving, whose whose hearts are hard, whose eyes are blind, who instead of turning will be punished. See, Israel will never have that experience of seeing, beholding clearly because of their hardness of heart, because of the blindness of their eyes and the deafness of their ears. They remain hard and calloused about their sin, not repentant and remorseful of their sin. And so so there is no hope for this nation, Israel. At least no hope until God's purifying judgment sweeps through the land and only this holy stump, this holy seed is left where God will come and finally deal with their sin. That's for future chapters of Isaiah. Raises the question for us though, doesn't it? How clearly do you see God? Are you like Israel, a bit hardened toward God, far too accepting of our own sin, owning our own sin? Or has something today about this picture of God and His holiness opened you up to actually just seeing clearly the holy God who is there. How do you see God? You know I reckon if you've never properly repented of your sin, if you've never been on your knees at the point of just just mourning. The sin that is there, well, then it's possible that you haven't fully reckoned with God's holiness and your sin. We should be terrified. We should never get comfortable with sin. But for those who have, with desperation, thrown yourself at the mercy of God and received Christ's atonement for you, then the message is different. The message actually draw near to God, keep coming to Him. Never stop. Uh, receiving Christ's atonement for him, for yourself. Don't stop fighting sin. Never stop in the battle for holiness. For Christ has made us holy. And so we've got the task now to seek holiness in every aspect of our lives that we do for ourselves, that we do for each other, that we do collectively as his church. Because if God is holy and he has made us holy, so his command is to be holy as I am. Church, that is the message, really, from Isaiah chapter 6 for us. Uh, There's a classic book by a bloke called J.C. Ryle. He actually uh, uh, talks about holiness like this, and I think it's a great way to finish. Holiness is a habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is a habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in his word, by the standard, uh, everything in his in this world by the standard of His Word. See, church, that's how God's bone shaking holiness transforms us to be holy. Wouldn't I pray for us in the midst of that? Heavenly Father, we have been confronted by a terrifying and and awesome, or aspiring picture of You, but Father. As we gaze into your holiness, we can't but be aware of our own sins, failures, faults, lusts, and the things that are in our hearts that we know are part of our rebellion against you. Father, we pray, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would indeed come and atone for our sins, which we know that you have done by the body and blood of Jesus. And as Father has forgiven people now, will you help us to grow in holiness, Will you help us to be like you are, holy? Will you help us collectively together to always be hating our sin, confessing it to you and to each other, and then moving forwards and growing in holiness in the image of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.
0: church has plenty to reflect on as we've seen a massive awe-inspiring